Perceiving Saul's repentance to be insincere, David decides to take refuge in the land of his enemies, the dreaded Philistines. This is the 56th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. A Royal Covenant reading coming from Samuel in chapter 27. Chapter 27, the entire chapter here in chapter 27, and then moving on to chapter 28, the first seven verses. Chapter 27, 1 Samuel chapter 27, beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. And David arose and he passed over with 600 men that were with him unto Achish, the son of Mahak, king of Gath. And David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahananoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's wife. And it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath, and he sought no more again for him. And David said unto Achish, If I have now found grace in thine eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country, that I may dwell there. For why should thy servant dwell in the royal city with thee? And Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Wherefore, Ziklag pertaineth unto the kings of Judah unto this day. And the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was a full year and four months. And David and his men went up and invaded the Geshurites and the Gezerites, and the Amalekites, for those nations were of old the inhabitants of the land, as thou goest to Shur, even unto the land of Egypt. And David smote the land, and left neither man nor woman alive, and took away the sheep, and the oxen, and the asses, and the camels, and the apparel, and returned, and came to Achish. And Achish said, Whither have ye made a road today? And David said, Against the south of Judah, and against the south of the Geramelites, and against the south of the Canaanites, and David saved neither man nor woman alive to bring tidings to Gath, saying, lest they should tell on us, saying, so did David, and so will be his manner, all the while he dwelleth in the country of the Philistines. And Achish believed David, saying, he hath made his people Israel utterly to abhor him, therefore he shall be my servant forever. And it came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together to warfare, to fight with Israel. And Achash said unto David, Know thou assuredly that thou shalt go out with me to battle, thou and thy men. And David said to Achash, Surely thou shalt know what thy servant can do. And Achash said to David, Therefore will I make thee keeper of mine head forever. Now Samuel was dead. And all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. And the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they pitched in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. Then said Saul unto his servants, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, 
There is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. Paul writing to the church at Rome in chapter 2, the first 11 verses. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. By the same spirit, the apostle Paul writes, Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou should escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patience, continuance, in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. But unto them that are contentious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now, suspecting that Saul's confession and repentance was insincere, as it obviously was, for we have seen time and time again, that Saul's repentance was, in fact, insincere. And he quickly reverted back to his old ways. And knowing this, that his repentance was insincere, and he was still a deceptive individual, David takes refuge amidst his enemies, even the dreaded Philistines. Verse 1 of chapter 27, And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. Now David's concern was that Saul would continue to hunt for David's life, even though God had so many times interposed to protect David. Nevertheless, David takes no chances, nor does he desire to tempt God by letting down his guard and believing Saul. He didn't want to believe Saul because he knew Saul to be a deceiver and a liar. Actually, he also knew him to be a great murderer and his plan was always to assassinate David. And this shows how astute David was as to Saul's lack of integrity. Saul was not to be trusted. A man who was such a man as Saul was never to be trusted. And so David returns to Achish, king of Gath, to hide from Saul, as he did one time before, when he feigned himself mad before the king, taking with him at this time his army of 600 men, their families, their wives, their children, and David's wives as well. We see this in verse 2 and 3. And David arose, and he passed over with the 600 men that were with him unto Achish, and of course, David dwells there at Achash at Gath, he and his men and their entire household with David and his wives. Now, this was quite an entourage of people. David is not only bringing his army to seemingly, as he would have Achash believe, to seemingly side with the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, but he brings with him an entire population of families 
And that too was very cunning on David's part, bringing everyone into the protection of Achish, women and children and the army as well, would show just how committed David was to the cause of the Philistines. And by this maneuver, David lulls Achish, this is the wisdom and the cunning of David, David lulls Achish into a false sense of security in order to keep him off his guard against David and David's ultimate plan. To further this manipulation, David brings to the Philistines something that the Philistines wanted most of all was intel. He was going to bring Israel's strategies and tactics, that intelligence, to the king of Gath and the Philistines. And this was a very important aspect of why Achish would embrace David and his army. So David comes with the knowledge of Israel's military forces, their strategies and their tactics in order to further secure Achish's trust. And this was used as David's bargaining trip. I will bring you my families, I will bring you my my warring machine, my warfare machine, and I will also bring you that precious intelligence so that you might know the strategy of Saul and the armies of Israel. Now, this situation provided David with two very strategic opportunities. Firstly, by taking refuge in the Philistine camp, David no longer had to worry about Saul's continued attempt to assassinate him. He no longer had to be running from Saul. He could be involved in the building of the kingdom and the establishment of God's work, God's glory, instead of simply always being on the defensive. He can now be on the offensive Situation, he could now be on the offense, in an offensive situation for the glory of God. David knew that his rebuke of Saul and Abner would eventually sink in and they would become infuriated, further infuriated with him, resulting in a renewed passion for his assassination, for his death. Remember, whenever you rebuke a wicked individual, you should expect some backlash, some blowback, and David did expect such a thing. When you receive such a response, you can then know that the man is an unrighteous individual. Rebuke a righteous man, however, and you get a friend. But you rebuke a wicked man, and of course you get a blotch. And this is what Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 9, Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Reprove a wise man, which Saul was not, neither was Abner at this time, and he will love thee. David's rebuke to Saul only fueled his hatred. Secondly, hiding within the camp of the Philistines not only provided sanctuary for David, his family, and his men, but provided opportunity, and this is what David was actually looking for, he was looking for opportunity against the Philistines. Once that opportunity presented himself, he would then execute whatever his plan might be. David's plan to frustrate Saul did work, as we read in verse 4 of chapter 27. And it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath, and he sought no more again for him. Now note how cunningly David appeals to Achish. Verse 5, And David said unto Achish, If I have now found grace in thine eyes, in other words, he's not saying, I have found now grace in thine eyes, but if I have found grace in thine eyes, let them, let the people, the Philistines, the elders of the people, give me a place in some town and in some country that I may dwell there. For why should thy servant, notice the 
couching of the language here. Why should thy servant, I'm your servant, here's my identification, I'm identifying myself as your servant, why should thy servant dwell in the royal city with thee? So David begins by establishing his character initially by not doing them any harm while he was living among them the first time as he feigned himself insane. So while he seemed to be a bit insane, at that time when he was there, he did nothing to compromise their security. And so once again, he begins negotiating with Akesh. Notice, if I have now found grace in thine eyes, if I have found favor in thine eyes, the structure of David's address is also very cunning. He doesn't say, now that I have found favor in thy sight, but rather, if, I'm leaving it up to you, is this the situation? If I have found favor in thy sight, so he structures his address conditionally. David wants to assess Akash's impression about himself, about David, and his hiding out within the nation of the Philistines. In other words, he's leaving the final decision, and this is very cunning, he's leaving the final decision of whether or not he has found grace and favor in the eyes of the king, he's leaving that final decision in the hand of the king. And by doing this, he's also letting the king know that he is still the king and David has not come to invade nor do the Philistines any harm. So by this address, David is also acknowledging the king's royal authority. He's, he's promoting his, his sovereignty, his authority. He's not saying, I've come as an equal, as the king of Israel. I've come as thy servant, O king. And he, by this statement, is actually empowering the king by giving him the authority, the respect, and the honor to reject or embrace David's request. He's putting all the power, very cunningly, all the power in the king's hand. Very cunning, but also not only cunning, but brilliant. David then asks Akesh to appeal to the Philistine people for a place for he and his people to take up residency. Notice, let them give me a place in some town and some country so that I may dwell there. And that too is very cunning. If Akesh the king asked his people for a place for David, if Akesh was now impressed by David and secure that David was not meaning the Philistines any harm, then he would lobby for David. David didn't have to lobby to the people. The king now, would lobby the people and seek to persuade the people. So if Akash the king asked his people for a place for David and his family and followers to live in, it would validate the sincerity of David. So David knew that he could not persuade the people himself to allow him to stay, so he moves the king to ask in his stead. Certainly if the king would ask, how could the people refuse? David then humbles himself and places himself under the king's authority, if only to gain a place of refuge and his trust. And that's why he says, for why should thy servant, thy servant dwell in the royal city? I don't want to dwell in the king's city. I don't want to dwell in the royal city, even though I'm the king of Israel, the future king of Israel, the ordained of Samuel. I don't want to dwell in your courts. I just want a simple cottage somewhere in the countryside so that I may bring my families and my men to be safe from the wrath of Saul. To have David, the giant killer, think about this. David is offering himself for the king's service. And Akash knew very well that here is David, the giant killer of Gath. As the servant of Akash, that, that was just too much to hope for. 
And yet, here is David, the champion of Israel, submitting himself to the authority and protection of the king of the Philistines. And so, with these benefits to the Philistines, this time, unlike before, Akesh receives David kindly and gives him Ziklag as his place of residence. But now we must consider a number of difficult questions. Did David really lack faith when he fled from Saul to Akesh? Now, too many commentators charge David of faithlessness in his decision and yet, how could that be? We, we know who David is. We know that David is a man of God, a man who God has ordained. He is a man wholly trusting God. Was he now failing, as so many commentators concluded? Or was there another reason why David would remove himself from Israel to dwell with the Philistines? Why leave Israel to dwell in the Philistines' camp with the enemy of God? Certainly he did not want to trust Saul. He didn't want to tempt God by returning to the court of Saul. Certainly that was part of it. He wouldn't tempt God. But there was something else. What did David know? What was his plan? What was his motivation? Well, firstly, David knew that since Saul's confession and repentance was insincere, Saul was still under the judgment of God and could not be trusted. Three times, God had symbolically transferred Saul's authority to David, first by the tearing of Samuel's mantle, and then by David cutting off a piece of Saul's royal robe, and finally, for the third time, by taking Saul's royal spear and the cruise of water while in a deep sleep. Secondly, David also knew that as the leader of the nation, Saul's tyranny and his wickedness was sealing Israel's doom. As long as Saul was Israel's king, Israel was still under the frowning providence of God. God was still judging Israel. The judgment of God was still abiding upon Israel. And the blood of Saul's tyranny was still upon the land. So God's judgment was still upon Israel. And David wanted nothing to do with that destruction. I believe this is what is actually meant by David stating that if he returned to Saul's court and the nation of Israel, he would perish by God's wrath, not so much by Saul, but by God's wrath as a result of Saul's tyranny and his wickedness. And so David was more concerned about the wrath of God coming upon the nation than Saul's wrath upon him personally. Thirdly, in light of this, David knew that Israel was following Saul, which made the entire nation culpable to his evil as well. And this would further ensure God's wrath coming upon the nation. And David, of course, wanted nothing to do with that. He wanted to escape the wrath of God. Number four, anticipating Israel's destruction, David takes a remnant of Israel's people totaling 600 with their wives and children and removes them from the judgment into the wilderness of Ziklag, the Philistine city. Now, if we are to apply this to the situation that we face today in light of the apostate churches which have been taken over by worldliness, we might infer that it is better to dwell in the wilderness of the Philistines with our families, our faithful families, our our faithful friends, than to remain within the camp of the apostate church, which is bent upon following the tyrannical mandates of the state and their attempts on silencing the truth by assassinating the witness of Christ. So sometimes it's better to leave the apostate church and go into the wilderness than to stay in that church and be polluted and become under uh, susceptible, at least under the wrath of God. David also knew that, number five, one of the ways in which God brings judgment is by bringing upon a nation 
an enemy nation, another enemy nation. For Israel, that would be the Philistines. So he believed that God was going to bring the Philistines upon Israel, and he didn't want his beloved Israel to be totally destroyed. So he sets himself up as a spy, an opportunist within the camp of the Philistines, so a total annihilation of Israel would never take place. He could have an opportunity against the Philistines to thwart their evil schemes. Now, since God's people had rebelled and gone apostate, David goes to the Gentile nation of the Philistines, and takes up residency there. Now it is interesting to note the gospel significance here in this historical narrative. When God's people, Israel, rebelled and went astray, God actually removed himself from them. He chose a remnant of the people from that nation, like David's 600 men, to go into the nations of the world, the Gentile nations, to bring the gospel and then destroys Israel and their ceremonies in 70 AD by the enemies of Israel, the Romans. The apostle makes clear that while his people were enemies, Christ dies for them. Notice Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. And so, once again, we have the shadow of the gospel in the story of David and Saul. As one commentator observes, David knew judgment was coming upon Israel and that he therefore needed to get himself and the remnant out of town as quickly as possible. This was not a failure of faith on his part at all. It was instead a profound expression of faith. It partakes of the exodus motif used so often in scripture calling Abraham leaving Ur, Lot leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, Israel's exodus from Egypt and later the Christians' exodus from Jerusalem before A.D. 70. In each of these cases, the issue was judgment upon the rebellious people in the land with the deeper purpose being the preservation of the remnant, end quote. Now, Christians need to be able to discern when judgment, like David was able to discern, when judgment was upon a nation, when that judgment of God is coming upon the nation and understanding when that judgment is coming, the people of God, Christians especially, in our day especially, need to be able to prepare for it. Like the sons of Issachar, like the children of Issachar, we need to know the times and the seasons. And depending on what kind of judgment God deems necessary, that is what will depend upon what kind of response is necessary by the people of God. If the judgment is famine, as it was in Joseph's day, then preparation of food storage must be in place. If the judgment is economic, then preparations must be made economically, as when the money failed, also in the days of Joseph. If the judgment takes the form of societal chaos, then preparations for home and family security must be then put in place. If the judgment takes the form of natural disasters, then energy preparations must also be factored in, like heat and cooking fuel, along with some electrical issues that might be addressed. And so, also, if natural disaster means devastation, then evacuation might be in order. And this is what David did. He evacuated the land of Israel in order not to be destroyed by God's wrath while abiding within the nation of Israel. Seeing that the destruction on Israel was to be devastating, David evacuates into another region until the danger was passed. And at the same time, he's putting himself in a very, very, very powerful position within the land of the Philistines. Convinced that David is sincere 
and that he might be just the edge needed to defeat Israel, Akesh gives David and his men Ziklag. We see this in verse 6. Then Akesh gave him Ziklag that day, wherefore Ziklag pertaineth unto the kings of Judah unto this day. Adam Clark explains the history of Ziklag. He says this, Ziklag was at first given to the tribe of Judah, but afterward it was ceded to that of Simeon, the Philistines had, however, made themselves masters of it and held it to the time here mentioned. It then fell into the tribe of Judah again and continued to be the property of the kings of Judah. Verse 7 tells us of the timing of David's sojourning in Ziklag. In verse 7, and the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was a full year and four months. Enough time to really dig his heels in, to really get himself understanding of how the Philistines thought, what their strategies might be, and of course making himself even that much more powerful and influential for the glory of God. Not for the glory or the victory of the Philistines, but for the glory of God and for the preservation of Israel, his beloved people. Now it seems that during this time, David is securing his position, of course, as a friend, as a confidant, as someone to be trusted by the Philistines, not only by the king, but by the Philistines. And he does this by warring against their enemies. We see this in verse 8, and David and his men went up and invaded the Gishrites, and the Gezerites, and the Gerites, and the Amalekites, for those nations were of old the inhabitants of the land, as thou goest to Shur, even unto the land of Egypt. Now note how comprehensive was David's victory, verse 9. And David smote the land, and left neither man nor woman alive, and took away the sheep, and the oxen, and the asses, and the camels, and the apparel, and returned, and came to Achish. Now commentators here also, I believe, err, and have viewed this situation as a low point in David's life. But was it really? Was it not strategic? David was actually continuing the liberating work that Israel, Joshua, and Saul had started in obedience to the Lord's commandments. You see, God had commanded Israel to judge certain pagan nations to the point that nothing survived. And we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 20, beginning in verse 16, we read this. But of the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth. But thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that they teach you not to do after their abominations which they have done unto their gods, so should ye sin against the Lord your God. So David was simply using the power of the Philistines and the position that the Philistines had given him to defeat God's sworn enemies, gaining more trust and security by the Philistines, since Israel, under Saul now, had become powerless to conquer anything. So David was doing what Saul was unable to do. God told Saul to destroy the Amalekites totally, which Saul did not do, in clear rebellion against God. In fact, he even kept Agag alive, and the best of the livestock, which was a direct violation of God's clear commandment. Samuel had to kill Agag himself, because Saul failed to do that, which was part of Saul's commission. In fact, he had to cut Agag into pieces. We assume it was 12 pieces because of the 12 tribes of Israel that the Levite had done to his concubine and that Saul had done to, to intimidate Israel to fight with him. But the point of fact here is that it was Samuel that had to complete the failed mission of Saul. By destroying the Amalekites, David was merely completing what Saul failed to complete. And this too is a lesson for us. 
Once the church becomes apostate, the remnant are allowed to cleverly unite with the pagans as long as they are seeking to defeat the enemies of God. For example, within the political world, we may at times unite with men who may not comply with all of the requirements of Scripture as long as they will fight the Lord's battles against the enemies of God. On the battle against the abortionists in particular, we may deem it necessary to use the power of the Roman church or an evangelistic church that does not comply with the doctrines of faith or a parachurch ministry or even a, even a secular entity. As long as, even as David did to manipulate them, as long as they are seeking the same end as we in the fight against a particular cause, in this case, abortion. We, however, must be very careful and this is a warning footnote, very careful not to become ensnared by their religious doctrines. But as we learn from the text, David was given a separate city so as not to get too close to God's enemies, especially their religious observances, but close enough that he might use them for God's glory. And God does this all the time. Even God uses the reprobate to destroy other reprobates. David was simply following God's lead. After each raid, David returns with livestock but no prisoners. He gives booty back to the Philistines, but he doesn't bring any prisoners because they might be prompted by Akash to tell what was really going on when Akash would inquire what was going on. David was wanting to keep these people silent because he was strategically not defeating any of Israel's territories or Israel's people. So after each raid, David returns with livestock, but no prisoners, which might have prompted Achish to inquire as to what progress David was making. And so he asked the question in verse 10, and Achish said, Whither have ye made a road today? What progress, in other words, have you made today in your conquests? Now David's answer is both cunning and deceptive. And he does this so as not to raise suspicion and to continue to garner a greater trust from the king. Notice what David says, against the south of Judah. And that, what did that mean? That didn't mean anything. Where was the south of Judah? Who was in the south of Judah? Where is the south of Judah? And against the south of the Jerahemelites. And against the south of the Kenites. Where, where was that? Who was that? These answers were so vague as to any specificity that Akash didn't really know what was going on. So he doesn't give a very specific location. He doesn't speak of any specific people, any areas or territories that he was raiding. He keeps it very vague. As another commentator surmised, he says, David was being strategically vague with Akesh. Although technically he was answering the question as Akash asked, for he never apparently asked David specifically whom David was raiding. Now again, the, the phrase, the south of Judah, it didn't really mean anything. And yet, in Akash's mind, because he had already been trusting David, in Akash's mind, he thought David was raiding Judah. Scholars have concluded that the areas that David was raiding were mostly barren areas, or even areas where God's enemies were. Of course, Akash couldn't know that. He thought that Judah, Israel's people, were being plundered. Verse 11 exposes another reason why David slaughtered everyone in these barren areas so as not to alert Akash that he was not actually raiding his own people. If he would have left any prisoners alive, they may have told Akash what David really was up to and would have blown his cover. 
Achish was made to think that David was raiding the cities of God's people, but he wasn't. And he was deceiving very purposely, which is part of the strategy that God's people can use against the wicked, thinking that David was on his side. Verse 11, And David saved neither man nor woman alive to bring Titus to Gath, saying, Lest they should tell on us, saying, So did David. And so will be his manner all the while he dwelleth in the country of the Philistines, as far as his deception was concerned. So David's deception worked, and Achish believed him to the point where Achish thought David was so committed to the nation of the Philistines that he would remain his servant forever. Notice verse 12 of chapter 27, and Achish believed David. See, notice the success of David's cunning. And Achash believed David, saying, He hath made his people Israel utterly to abhor him, therefore he shall be my servant forever. A very rash disclosure of his heart to David. He'll be my servant forever. Now these deceptive exploits situated David in such a very powerful position that he could use it against the Philistines. And that's what that strategy is telling us. We too, as Christian men and women need to put ourselves in our communities in a very strategic position. I marvel over the justices when now they're being indicted for fraud or slander, that they made fraudulent statements when they were vetted by the Senate, and yet they weren't being fraudulent. They were saying, look, we will uphold the law of the land, but they never said if it comes to our desk again, we might overturn it. They never said that. They too were being very cunning. So these deceptive, cunning traits of God's people are very powerful tools to be used in the community against the enemies of God. What David did was to utterly deceive the enemies of God into thinking that he was on their side in order to destroy them from within. Note how deception against God's enemies is a biblical and God-honoring strategy. We see this in Rahab. We see it in the midwives as well. This is something that the Christians must understand and use appropriately. So now, once David secured his position, the Philistines are emboldened against Israel. They had the giant killer with them. They had David, the killer of a a, a hundred Philistines that, that took the foreskins of the Philistines. They had the giant killer with them. Now they're empowered. Now they're going to go against the people of God who had been taken over by the tyranny of Saul. So they are empowered, emboldened against Israel and now they prepare to engage them in battle. In fact, David had so deceived Achish that the king asks David to stand alongside him with his army when the battle begins. Notice verse 1. Of chapter 28, and it came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, Know thou assuredly that thou shalt go out with me to battle, thou and thy men. This is what David wanted all along. But David's response is brilliant, cunning, but it's also curious. It was curious because of what David is saying. Notice, and David said unto Achish, Surely thou shalt know what thy servant can do. You know what I can do. I can kill giants. I can kill Philistines. But Achish isn't understanding what David is actually saying. David is not necessarily saying that he will fight with Achish against the Philistines. He's saying, I'm a giant killer. You know what I'm able to do. You know what my capabilities are. You know what my power is. You know what my strength is. You know what I can do. 
But Akesh didn't understand what David was actually saying. And in his stupidity, his blindness, the fact that David's deception was so great, Akesh says to David, therefore, because I know what you can do, and you'll fight for us because you're the giant killer of the Philistines, he says, therefore will I make thee keeper of mine head forever. But all David is saying is that his warfare, cunning, strength and success, are well documented against the Philistines. Surely thou shalt know what thy servant can do. Now this didn't mean that David would fight for Achish. It actually was saying that David would fight for Israel. David was actually telling Achish that he would do what he always did, killing Philistines. That was his skill, and especially the giants of the Philistines. What's incredible is that Achish's misunderstanding of David's comment makes David Achish's personal bodyguard. You will be my protector forever. And so, thinking that David was going to fight for the destruction of his own people, Israel, Achish promises David to be the captain of his personal bodyguards. Now that David positions himself into a place of great opportunity and authority. And it was from this place he could do valiantly for the glory of God. Now the scripture curiously places verse 3 between the narrative of impending war in order to make a point that Sammy was dead and that Saul, in a political maneuver, had expelled all those that had familiar spirits and wizards out of the land, those witches and wizards out of the land. Now this tells us a few things as to the situation. Firstly, Samuel was dead, which meant that Saul had no one to go to, nor did anyone else have a position of being a certified prophet of God to inquire of. He was all alone. And this had far-reaching consequences since without the counsel of God, men could quickly go astray. Saul didn't know whether or not God was going to be with him against the Philistines or whether he should just turn tail and run. He had no prophet to tell him anything. And this is something that we must understand before we embark on any conquest, on any situation, any decision, big, small, or indifferent. We need to get the counsel of God's holy word. Secondly, Saul had previously outlawed witches and wizards. And so men had to go to God for counsel and not witches. But that begs a question. Do we ever go to witches and wizards and those who have familiar spirits to gain counsel? And of course, the Christian immediately would say, well, no, no, we don't do that. Well, yes, we do. Whenever we go to someone who's a heretic, who has heretical beliefs, or those who are of the psychological and uh, psychiatry bents, we go to them for counsel? Should we go to them for counsel like Saul would go to the witch of Endor? Or should we go strictly to God's people, God's men, the scriptures? That's where we go. We never go to the secularists. We never go to the heretics. We only go to God for his counsel. So by this time, now that all the witches and the wizards and those that sought for familiar spirits, those who peep and mutter and really don't speak anything of truth, men had to go to God for counsel. But for Saul, God was silent. At this time, there's no counsel from God. 
nor counsel from wizards or any who summoned the dead. Israel was on its own. Saul was left to himself. Samuel was dead. In fact, Saul had killed all the priests of Nob. You couldn't even go to the priests of Nob. Saul had destroyed them. And it was within this time period that warfare between Israel and the Philistines was being staged providentially by God. And this too added insult to the situation because David was among the Philistine camp. The one that Saul wanted to assassinate now was fighting on the other side with the enemy. And Saul had no one to ask for counsel. No one. He had seemingly gone over to the other side, David did, with his men of 600. And that must have even further frightened Saul. His heart was was trembling within him. Israel was at this time in this place of psychological dysfunctionality. They were at a psychological disadvantage. Their morale was, was quite quite down, I would suppose, knowing that David was with the Philistines. They knew that they were at a disadvantage, to say the least, not only psychologically, but militarily and spiritually as well. And once the two armies faced off, the Scriptures tell us that Saul is greatly terrified. He trembled with fear. Verse 4 and 5 And the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they pitched in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. Once again, we are reminded of the faithlessness of Saul and his utter depravity. Adam Clark remarks, he says, Saul soar from the superiority of his enemies, from the state of his army, and especially from his own state toward God, that he had everything to fear, end quote. So in Saul's desperation, he calls upon God, but God refuses to answer in any of the prescribed ways that God would usually answer. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. And why should God answer such a wicked man as Saul? God was not obliged to answer Saul. And the lesson is simple. God only hears the prayers of the upright in heart. Solomon makes this very clear. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 15.8, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. And in verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, as he was with Saul, but he heareth the prayer of the righteous. Consider what Isaiah records in Isaiah 1.11 and following. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear, because your hands are full of blood. Saul is left to his own devices. Saul, the rebellious man, a man bent on rebellion, treachery, witchcraft, and tyranny, now rejecting God in all of his ways. Now he's praying, now he's praying, just like the heathen. 
never looking to God in the good times, and then when bad times come, after they're being so wicked and disobedient, now they want to pray. Saul now wants to pray. Saul now wants an answer from God. Samuel is gone. Saul has killed the priest at Nob, but Saul wants an answer. Heaven is silent. It is iron and brass above him. At a very critical hour of life and death when Israel is facing down the enemies of God, the Philistines, with David as the head of Achish's captain of the guard, this is a critical hour. So in his desperation and in defiance of his own law of expelling those with familiar spirits, witches and wizards, Saul does exactly what his depraved nature dictates. He seeks a witch to tell him what to do. He seeks for a witch to tell him what to do. Verse 7, Then said Saul unto his servants, Notice the commandment, Seek me a woman that has a familiar spirit that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. Now, of course, we who are Christians, we don't seek after witches and wizards for counsel unless we decide to go to the secularists, those who have a reprobate mind, who hold to anti-Christian philosophies, world and life views, on par with those that seek after familiar spirits. And so whenever we, we seek the counsel of the ungodly, are we not following the path of Saul? And this is something we have to take very, very careful account of. So what should Saul have done? What should Saul have done when he received no answer from God. Certainly he should not, as we know, he should not have gone to the witch at Endor. What should he have done? Well, he should have humbled himself. He should have humbled himself and taken his medicine, saying, Lord, I am a sinner, and I will now face the wrath of God, whatever thy will is, perhaps, perhaps, even because I know that God is full of mercy, in compassion, maybe even now I will receive mercy. Even now will I receive his favor. In hope that somehow, somehow, God would show me mercy. But he doesn't do this. He should have humbled himself a long time ago, obviously. But even now, even at this time, God was looking for a broken spirit, which Saul was entirely incapable of producing as a result of the hardness of his heart. So instead of humbling himself before God, seeking whatever mercy might be left in the sovereign, he goes to the witch. But there's another thing here that is quite disturbing, which is natural to Saul. Saul was only calling upon God at this point to get him out of a jam. That's the only reason why he wanted to hear from God. He was not calling upon God to, to praise him or to seek his law or to confess his many sins. And this is what so many people do when they, when they face calamity, when they face crisis, after not looking to God or attending to his, his Sabbath day observances. All of a sudden, after rejecting God their whole lives, they come to a crisis and they say, Lord, have mercy upon me. Hear me, Lord. Get me out of a jam. Saul was calling upon God for yet another favor. But what Saul failed to understand was that God was fresh out of mercy, especially when it concerned Saul. You cannot reject God and then in a crisis ask for his help. Saul was on his own, completely on his own. 
And that is the most fearful place to be. On your own, without God upon your side. Instead, in Saul's despair, confusion, and according to his sinful and prideful disposition, he seeks what was forbidden by God expressly. He seeks for the witch of Endor. We shall consider this final act of rebellion next when we return to our exposition of the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.